You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Sadíte, že se neřídí podle svého nosu. Neboť tento úd je vždy poněkud uchýlen, buď vpravo nebo opět vlevo. Cítím živě, že žvaníte, mistře. Zdáli se vám snad kozelce nedokonalými? Hledáte-li dokonalost v kozelcích, nemám co bych řekl. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. Happy Czechtember. We are wrapping up Czechtember 2021 with a look at Yuri Menzel's Capricious Summer, released in 1968. It's based on a book by Vladislav Van Kura, whose Marketa Lazarova was brought to the screen just a year before. It's the story of three men on a holiday who spend most of their time philosophizing and avoiding one woman while trying to woo another and getting nowhere. 
Though I'm not sure if it's possible to spoil the film, we will definitely try our best. So if you haven't seen Capricious Summer, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. So, Jonathan, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think? I saw it in 2003 when I had just started doing my uh, research into Czech cinema. I think it was the second film of Menzel's that I'd seen after Closely Observed Trains. I was quite excited to see it because I'd seen the images of Menzel himself like on the tightrope, which always enticed me. And uh, I must say the first time I saw it, I loved it, you know, as I still do now. I think it's just a movie that has a lot of things in it that I like. I think I, I, I love movies you know, that have pastoral settings. I love movies that have fairgrounds at night, you know, those sort of nighttime, small town fairground scenes. And I love movies with traveling players. I also love movies that are unashamedly talky. And uh, this certainly is one of those. And I just thought it was really beautifully made. I think one of my favorite of his films, really. And Ken, how about you? I can't distinguish by years, Mike. You know, it's all in one lump. It's in that check thing that I always talk about where I, I, I go from not knowing anything to like obsessively having to see everything within the space of about year, a year. So it was definitely in then. But like Jonathan, it's got so many of the things I love, like circuses, pastoral settings, you know, all of that. I just, I adore this film. And I was like, hey, this is like the Czech Fellini. And you guys know how much I love Fellini. There's so much crossover with Fellini. Um, with Menzel, since I've come to know more of his films, I just, I think he's the warmest of the Czech New Wave directors. He's just such a humanist and. I just think it's wonderful. And I haven't seen it for, I don't know, maybe five years. So coming back to it this morning, just to prep for this, I forgot how funny it is. There's some real funny moments in it. Just so wonderful. I definitely came later to this film. It wasn't one that I was that familiar with. And when I watched it the first time, I was just like, wow, they do talk a lot. And they talk kind of obsequiously. Uh, they talk around a lot of things. There's a lot of philosophizing. There's definitely a lot of drinking. And then when I saw it the second time, it kind of clicked with me a, a little bit more. I was like, okay, yeah, I can get into this, especially because it has a very interesting structure. This whole thing of our three gentlemen at the beginning, and they are very into just talking and kind of reliving the glory days kind of thing. And then Menzel and his assistant come to town and his appearance as the circus performer is fantastic. And then it becomes this three nights of the circus where each one of the guys tries to woo the assistant. And I just, I love the way that it's set up and I love the way that each one tries a different thing. I mean, in the acting and the actors in this, I wasn't that familiar with Frantichek Rehek as uh, the canon, the priest, but obviously Rudolf Horinsky, uh as the, I guess he and his wife run the hot springs or the, the inn or whatever where they're at. This all takes place in, I found it was called Carlsbad, but it seems to be called something else, uh, in Bohemia. And he and his wife run this place. And then there's also Vladimir, Vladismil Brodsky as Major Hugo. 
so we've got the religion, we've got the military, and then we've got commerce. And so then I'm like, where did I just see this recently? And I was like, oh, yeah, in Sabata, the bad guys represent like the power structure. And here we have these guys. And I don't think that they're necessarily a power structure that feels like they're just bureaucrats kind of grasping at the glory days of the past. The way it explores masculinity and femininity is incredible. And I think that's something that comes up in a lot of Menzel's films, the ones I've seen. But I found this great quote in one of the essays that you sent us from George Bluestone's Yuji Menzel's The Second Prague Spring, where he says, "In, in Menzel's world, sexual love has a kind of guileless assertion. It's more pagan than Puritan and there is this I find it a, a weirdly erotic film if that makes sense but that's mainly through the way that he portrays women you've got these very very sensual women and around them and this is where the the Fellini thing kicks in you've got this group of, of very inept impotent ridiculous men so for all their heffing and peffing about importance they're ridiculous and it is genuinely hilarious because of that, especially Hrinsky with his preening in his cigar. It starts off, he's swimming and he's got this cigar coming out like a periscope and, and he strips off, gets out of the water and strips off to show his bare ass. And he's just like, you know, <laughs> and, and he's so proud and big headed. But as it unravels, you start to realize how ridiculous he is, how they're, they're all kind of pathetic. Even Menzel's circus character is what well, he, he plays that character. So well. I always think of him as a person like he must have been that in real life but he was actually a genius i guess it's like woody allen syndrome isn't it he really played up that kind of i guess we call it dorky now this dorky ineffectual type he's just so good in it and i i think the reason i came to this actually i was deliberately trying to find hrinsky films and like how many films did he make like about 200 films so that was like a failed quest i didn't get very far but out of the ones that i found capricious summer and also murder check style turned out to be my two favorites of his because i just absolutely he's almost like his character in the cremator in that he's a bloody big head and he's really into ideology and his concept of masculinity but the reality is he's a bit of a coward. He's not what he pretends to be. So for all their talking, I think that just serves as a device to show you how fucking ridiculous they are, which I love. It's the total Fellini and Neto thing in films like the characters that Marcello Mastriani would play, the Dolce Vitas, all about Marcello really just trying to get laid and being kind of useless at it. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that i always connect this film with is the british sitcom last of the summer wine which oh my god yes <laughs> and and when i've said that to people people think i'm being facetious but i mean i actually love last of the summer wine so you know it's not uh this is not a negative comparison on on my part but i think it's got that similar quality in that you know you have this other group of three men i mean i guess the difference is that in last of the summer wine they're actually elderly whereas here they're more middle-aged but i think it's still the same idea that you have this sort of trio of men living out really their kind of like twilight or their their last years their autumn years i guess and uh 
just being engaged in these very petty squabbles and these little adventures which never really amount to anything and there's something kind of like pathetic about that but there's also something very kind of warm and idyllic about it as well i think even the representation of the female characters is similar in the the women i mean in last of the summer wine and i think in this and i think maybe that's a reflection of like British and Czech humour and this kind of representation of this, you know, battle of the sexes that they both share. And the women are, you know, always the more capable and the more practical. And I mean, even the figure of Anna in this, who is the, you know, the magician's assistant, who is this very glamorous, you know, sort of magical presence, I mean, is revealed ultimately to be, you know, very capable and... And much more skilled than... That's than, right. <laughs> ...than mental when she actually gets up and does the bars. <laughs> that's right. You feel that the women kind of tolerate the men's egos and they say, yeah, yeah, it's okay, but then really they're in charge. It is... So, I, I don't know if you know Lassa Summer Wine, Mike, but that is so spot on it, it i didn't appreciate it as a kid it became one of those sitcoms it was on sunday night and last of the summer wine theme tune always indicated the weekend was over and you were about to go back to school and i didn't quite get it but i came to appreciate it when i got older because it is it's kind of cynical but it's also very warm and it's just about this group of pensioners who've retired and they hang out in this little village and one of them's really into this this woman he obsesses over her Nora Batty and they walk around the fields and they talk a lot about life and it is really that is just so spot on actually it is it's like the Czech last of the summer wine just years before anyone thought of last of the summer wine I said they were kind of ridiculous, but there's a warmth to them as well. You you like them. They're ridiculous, but not in an arrogant ugh, way. You know, you all of them are, are kind of sweet in their way as well. And Last of Summer Wine was pretty much the same thing. I love the Katerina character. Uh, Antonin Dura is his character's name, uh, his wife. She is flirting with everybody. She is so not happy with her husband. When she's trying to woo the priest in the boat and talking about how someone used to pinch her bottom, and she's very obviously flirting with him, and he has no clue or just is being completely obstinate, and then the boat sinks. And it's just like one thing after another after another with these guys. And I, I love, too, the whole back and forth of Hurinsky and uh, Rayback uh, as far as the um, how Hurinsky just keeps slamming the Bible. And I love just how he's talking about what a uh, ridiculous old book that it is and just completely against organized religion. I was like, okay, I can respect that. It's interesting how the, the sort of discourse changes as well, isn't it, throughout the film? Because I think initially – the the priest is like the voice of like morality and he's preaching the bible he's preaching morality and then hrushinsky's like yeah well, you know it's just an old book and what's that line about the donkeys you know it does does a drunk donkey bray better just because it's older and he's he, and he's flouting that you know that kind of you know sort of moral instruction and then when the priest actually tries to seduce anna 
uh, and then Hrushinsky's character gets sort of upset about that. He sort of turns the table and then, and then he's the one who is kind of, uh, you know, preaching, you know, uh, or, or, or denouncing like immoral literature, isn't he? And he's talking about, you know, all this literature that's just coming out of brothels and, uh, you know, when will we have like positive stories about, you know, physical strength and about, uh, I, I think the line in Czech is something like it's about like agitational principles in the correct class sense. And it's just this very highfalutin language. And you think, well, you know, before you were kind of, you know, you were, you know, embracing this kind of, you know, very different perspective. And I think this is constant sort of these, these constant shifts, aren't there, in the, in the things that they're saying. And in a way, I think that's one of the things that makes it a bit confusing. I think when you first see it, because I think you're trying to follow what they're saying as though it's like a kind of like an Eric Roma film or as though it's a film that has these, you know, very kind of finely honed philosophical insights. But I think the more you watch it, the more you realize that in a way they're I think they're just sort of spinning, you know, these things out of nowhere. And it's really just a kind of one upmanship, isn't it? Where they're Oh, it's totally about that. Is who who is the who is the the prized man in the group? And it's all about male ego, which I absolutely love. It's really intuitive as well, considering Menzel wasn't that old when he made it, how it speaks about the aging male ego, which also goes back to last of the summer wine, because they're all into middle age now and, you know, probably not as vital as they used to be. But this constant, you get three other women turn up. And this constant sort of thing that they're, and, and who is it? Is it the priest who says, I'm going to leave because one of them's going to pretend to drown in a minute? Like, oh, I'm, <laughs> and, and they don't do anything, these women. They just kind of look at them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're so full of talk. And I, I love the major at the beginning when he's got his fork and he's got his arm up and he's doing all of the fencing and everything. And then he's taken down at the end of the film by, uh, men who just has a stick and manages to hurt his arm and give him a black eye. It's like, okay, I guess you're not that great of a swordsman after all. One of the last shots of the film, not to jump too ahead, is my favorite when they're sat around the table. You've got, is it, which one is it that's got the thing over his ears? So it's Oh, that's heads. the priest, yeah. The priest, and one's got a black eye, <laughs> and an Anton in his back with his wife, so he hasn't escaped. And you just get this, they're just sat there, sort of looking really pissed off and ridiculous. And I just think it is so intuitive. I, I think when we think of the Czech New Wave, all those really political films that came out of that. But this really is just about the human experience. It's about what it's like to get old and feel a bit ridiculous. And it's about this battle between the sexes, which, you know, you see that in closely watched trains. You know, you see it come up quite a lot in his films. The same as Fellini was always about men feeling guilty and ridiculous. Although Fellini's real best work in that would come with City of Women, which he's making well into middle age. And Menzel's doing it much early on much, much earlier on here. Because I think he was only just about 30 when he made this, yeah, which is amazing, so isn't it? Um, and this is, what, his second feature film? He had the one short in uh, Pearls of the Deep, and then he had Closely Watched Trains, and then this one. Yeah, whereas Fellini was sort of, Fellini's work's more about him as he ages. So, like, City of Women comes in 1980, starts to talk much more about morality and 
sort of women is all about looking back on his past with women and how he might have treated them and how he feels impotent now. And it's got all those themes. Whereas this is made by someone who's, who's not middle aged, you know, not in a, at a time when everything was kind of cool and political. And there's men's all making this very bittersweet intimate comedy about some guys who holiday for the summer <laughs> and try and get laid and and then also the the circusy bit again to go back to Fellini's circus in that obviously he's not as bold as Fellini in that Fellini would just use dreamlike imagery and stuff like that a lot of avant-garde stuff whereas this is done in a much more subdued way but there's there's definitely a lot of parallels between how those guys saw the masculine male. I forgot about crime in a girl's school. He also did a segment in that one. I know that has the same girl that's in um, closely watched trains. I can't remember her name. The one that he tries to kiss in that famous shot of uh, the main character trying to kiss her and yeah, see, the train going all, away. This awkwardness and this sort of anti bravado thing. I just think it's absolutely wonderful and done in such a wonderful way in this and closely watched closely watched trains but then you also have um the other thing he has in common with Fellini is this almost nostalgic aspect of the pastoral you know when time was simpler and the sort of settings you see in Amar called looking back on village life and of course Fellini used it a lot and men's all use these sort of pastoral locations a lot, but where life is at a bit of a remove to what's going on in maybe Prague. And we don't even know when this is supposed to be happening in this film. It could literally be in any time. Uh, it's just everything is more simple, but then you get these intrusions of the violence that's actually going on. And, and, and you see it in closely watched trains as well. It's this sort of very intimate setting where people are more concerned about getting a kiss, but then you get this eruption of violence and oppression that comes from outside that like intrudes on that. And you get it here mainly through their, well, mainly through Antonin's big concept talk. There's that whole talk at the beginning about, and I, and I didn't get this obviously because it's a cultural reference about the red trousers. In the army uniform. I don't know if you know what that meant, Jonathan, but you know, that that regiment wore the red trousers and as if there were regiments that sh showed off more or it made you braver or something. There's like this whole talk about soldiers wearing red trousers, which I didn't get that at all, but it's obviously again, like some cultural thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I think it's, uh, it's again, it's that one upmanship, isn't it? As to like military status. And I think again, like ties the, the figure of the major back to, I guess, the sort of pre first world war era of this kind of military glory and this pomp. And I guess he's already a throwback within even the world of the film. Like you say, I'm not, I'm not clear when it's meant to be set. It doesn't really tell you. I, I guess sort of little hints that it's sort of the interwar period. So it's possibly like the late 1910s or, or the 20s. I think the book was written in 1926. So I, I guess we could sort of position it around then. And I mean, it's interesting because that period within Czech history is itself a kind of an idyll because this is the time when Czechoslovakia is independent. It's a democracy. It has this uh, leader, you know, Masaryk, who is, you know, still a revered figure 
in Czech history. And it was, uh, you know, it had this flourishing culture. Uh, it had people like Vladislav Vanchura himself, who was active at this time. And it's almost like it's this little idyll of time and space where, you know, there are, I guess there are sort of storm clouds on the horizon. I mean, ultimately, but, you know, you have this sense of peacefulness and, uh, I mean, what's interesting when you think about the time when Menzel made the film as compared to when the book was written is that, I mean, all these figures, I guess, represent things that are going to be, you know, superseded by history. You have like the, the, the church, you have the, I guess, the, the army in the sense of the, you know, the sort of first world war era army. Um, and then you have the, the businessman. And I guess all of these figures will become obsolete, you know, after the communists take over. So. I guess that underpins really that sense of nostalgia that it has, that sense of, you know, of, of, of wistfulness and of, of, you know, seeing something darker that is going to take over. And I think that the interesting thing about the, the film as compared with the book is the way that the film ends with the rain coming back, which I think in the book doesn't happen. I think the book doesn't have any reference to the weather, but in, in the, in the film, it's very, conscious about having that circularity where you open and you close with this you know sunny day that then starts to rain and i think in in the last scene the rain looked it looks like it's here to stay doesn't it and then you have the characters just sitting there you know they're not doing anything to leave and it's as though there's this resignation that you know this the summer's gone you know the idyll is is over now you know or it's, it's about to end well, that the movie starts and ends with the same line of the course of the summer seems unfortunate indeed. Talk about just being kind of prescient. I mean, this is released during the Prague Spring. And so, yeah, this is going to end very badly. What is it? August something 68. This summer is very unfortunate for a lot of folks. Menzel's told like a funny story about the fact that I mean, he made two adaptations of Vanchura's books and one was Capricious Summer uh, the other was The End of Old Times and he said he made Capricious Summer I think he actually shot it in 67 sort of the end of 67 and of course you know not knowing what was going to come so he said you know I've made this film Capricious Summer and then you know the year later we have you know the ultimate Capricious Summer and then the other one he made was The End of Old Times in 1988 so a year before the old times of communism literally ends so you know, he was really kind of a prophet, I think. And, uh, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Cause it is, it is, there, there's something there. We're making it sound really depressing. It really isn't. It's whimsical and it's sweet, but there is this, this sense that something is coming, like something's there in the background. And the way he uses that, it is, I, so I've seen him written about as kind of cynical. I don't think he was cynical though. I think he was more of a realist. But then he counterbalances that with the whole, the magic of the circus. So it doesn't ever, you don't feel like you're getting some sort of political diatribe. I really love that whole element of this, uh, the way that the, the circus is presented. And I mean, I think to me, that's also very much in the tradition of like the Czech avant-garde of the interwar years, like the, the so-called Dvexil movement or the poetist movement that Ventura was part of and uh, I think this is something that's very distinctive to the Czech 
avant-garde where you have this love of circus performers and carnivals and I mean it's really there in Valeria and A Week of Wonders as well which I guess is like the other great new wave film you know using an avant-garde so actually Marquetta Lazarova as well there are three I guess but I think in Valeria you know you also get that sense of this love for you know circuses for carnivals and I think it's meant to represent something that's like liberatory, something that represents magic and poetry. And the funny thing is that I think in this story that, you know, the figure of Menzel as Arnashtek, the magician, he actually doesn't really represent those things himself because he is this kind of like shabby, rather sort of awkward figure. But I, I think it's the way that the characters invest that in those figures, don't they? They invest this sense of magic in them. And I think it's particularly funny in relation to the character of Katagina and the way she, you know, when she first sees him, you know, she's smitten by him. He's so miserable as well, isn't he? <laughs> that wonderful hangdog face, yeah. hasn't he? It's just wonderful the way he uses his own... He's quite self-deprecating, I think, really, and using himself in this way. He doesn't really sort of glamorise his appearance at all. And he's wearing this kind of like tatty looking kind of... Because I, 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 watching it again, I realised that I guess it's meant to be like a leotard, isn't it? But it's really just like this old nightshirt, which I guess is like, it's like the best that he could do, really. And <laughs> well, he's there begging for eggs from those guys at the beginning. As soon as he sees those pickled eggs, he's just like, hmm, what can I do to get those? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I think Katagini says, oh, but, you know, he ate with such hesitation you know and yeah he doesn't he's just like wolfing them down like <laughs> female characters so interesting because they're very sensual both of them are, are sexual in the way but you have anna who is like a tease so it's all a game to her and then you have is it katrina what's the english version of her name the wife yeah, I guess Katerina or Catherine. Katerina. She's amazing. She is like this sensual sort of chubby woman in this. When she comes out in her nightdress, you know, she's all sex, <laughs> the way that she's framed. And and both of these women have these sort of romance. They, they get carried away with romance, and I love that. So she just sees... The magician is somebody totally isn't, and it's wonderful. And then when she finds out the reality, even though it's her that, that built up this fantasy, she's really annoyed about it. But it's like, it's not like he's ever lied. He, he just, the magician is like, I guess like, like the other guys, he just goes along with whatever's happening. It's just, like you said, Jonathan resigned. It's like one woman leaves, another one comes in, just takes over. Uh, she, Katrina moves in with him at one point and there seems to be no discussion. She just, <laughs> just shows up at his, his wagon <laughs> door. Moans about his housework not being done and, and plans their future. And he just sits there and doesn't even <laughs> comment on it. <laughs> It's not quite clear as well what they're up to, is it? Because there's that first scene where she goes to him and to the caravan and then the caravan starts rocking. Yes. And you have the, yeah. The villagers watching and you think, well, is that, you know, is that what you think it is? Is it just that she's kind of like rearranging the, the insides of the caravan? Could be either, I guess, really. And my favorite scene in the whole film, and it was one that I'd forgotten is when Antonin goes to Anna for the for the, for the first night. So you've got the three guys and they all go to her. And like Mike said, they have a different approach of seduction. So he's the cock of the walk and he comes in and Anna's lying there. 
uh, and he start and, and and then you can see he's scared, like he's really scared. Yeah, he starts doing that thing with his hands. He'll stand up and just like yeah, kind of brush himself off and yeah. yeah. And he's pacing up and down, and then it looks like he's having a wank over, her, and then the camera slowly pans down. And he's rubbing her feet. That is absolute genius. It's such genius. Cut to the next morning, he's still rubbing her feet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because there's that moment where she blows out the candle, isn't it? And it's kind of, it's like misdirecting you because it right now something's going to happen. And then, yeah, like you say, cut back and it's just still going on, isn't it? It's a long, long hours and hours. (laughs) That's all he could manage. And then, of course, his wife comes rushing up, thinks he's done, you know, instead of just telling the truth, he he sort of (laughs) throws this water over and says, I saved her from drowning. Right. (laughs) Lying there soaked in water. It's just so, and then the next scene we see him, he's bragging to the other two, I saved this girl from drowning. So he's really invested in his own legend. And it's like, no, mate, you just spent the whole night there rubbing her feet and you could have probably done something else. And that's all you were capable of. So he has to create this idea that he's the hero. Uh, But all of them are pathetic, wonderfully pathetic. And the women are just really in charge of everything there. I just think it is wonderful in that respect. The wife, the way she, she's like, I've had enough of this. I'm moving in with the magician. Then she starts telling him, you know, this place is a mess. (laughs) I want to thank my co-stars, Leo, Margot Robbie, Margot Robbie's feet, Margaret Qualley's feet, Dakota Fanning's feet. Seriously, Quentin has separated more women from their shoes than the TSA. I guess there's a connection with like her approach too, in that she, I guess each of them does something that is kind of like intrinsic to their kind of normal activities. And I guess in her case, you know, she it's about taking charge of the household but at least she actually does something practical whereas the others just don't really do anything and and uh i mean i i think from what i remember of the book that uh the book doesn't really tell you what happens between antonine and anna or between um the major and anna so the film basically like invents those parts and i think there was one critic at the time who said that they felt this was sort of a betrayal of the book it was it was not really in the spirit of the book but i think it's perfectly in the spirit because this is exactly right i think in terms of the characters personalities and you know i think that that pun you know where it, it looks like it's masturbation and then it's, it turns out just to be massage i mean i think it's quite apt because in a way i guess their relationship to anna is kind of masturbatory isn't it because it's all just about this fantasy image with no real capacity to actually act on anything so i think it's very uh very good she plays this sort of almost objectify the way she's shot as well she's really objectified and sexy and coy but when she skipping ahead a bit puts on the leotard thing and does the actual act you start to realize she's actually a lot cleverer and a lot more skilled she somehow deliberately takes this submissive position as if it's part of a game she when she's lying there in front of Antonin, she's got this smile like she knows nothing's going to happen and it amuses her that's how I read it anyway. She just, she, she, she's just amused by the whole thing. It's, it's just a game to her. Yeah. I think she's a really interesting character when you start to re- reveal it. And, and weirdly, she goes for the man that she sees in the most need and both of them are the same. 
the man in the in most need. So she stays with the magician because he really does need her. So she ultimately sides with him. She's not interested in bravery or bravado. She has this strange relationship with him, which is slightly maternal. And it's the same with Antonin and his wife. There's this weird maternal thing in it as well, which I find interesting. But it's all sort of interlaced in with eroticism and sexual desire. And and she that last sort of moment of the two of them when they're walking away is like she's she's like supporting him, isn't she? Literally, yeah, like good. carrying him away. Yeah, yeah she carries him on her back. I remember when we talked about closely observed trains, there's the whole thing about the, the swan or the goose and how it looks like the woman is masturbating this goose. And in this movie, we've got plucked chickens and there's them plucking the chickens, uh, Katerina and, and Ernie or Anastek, the magician, they're plucking these chickens. He looks absolutely miserable while he's doing it. And then at one point, uh, when the priest is trying to woo Anna, uh, these guys are carousing in the street and they call Ernie a plucked chicken. So I was like, okay. It's almost like saying that he's, you know, some sort of a cuckold or something. I was like, this is interesting. So but they're all cuckolds. They are. Antonin is as well. And I think it says a lot about class, like working class women being like very matriarchal sort of society. Um, and, and the, uh, the scene with the chickens actually remind me of my grandmother because she was the grand matriarch who would pluck chickens and skin hairs in the kitchen and was always in charge of everything. Uh, and it really reminded me of that. It's like a really good, portrayal of that sort of culture where women might not have had political power or you know any other form of power in that way but they did have power in that the there's a lot of matriarchal domestic politics in more working class life put it that way so people often think oh working class women you know they're really downbeat but that's not the women i grew up knew in they were fierce everyone was terrified they ran the families and you see that I guess, you know, you can, you, can you, could you really be middle class in sort of communist Czechoslovakia? Seems like the same sort of culture. That's how I related to it. Just, um, the women in that were, were the same sort of women I grew up knew in and Katerina, especially, you know, this idea of these men are ridiculous. Like I've got to do everything. But when she goes back to Antonin, she's like, you haven't had a proper prepared meal for three days and look at the mess in here and he's just kind of sat there like a little kid (laughs) saying oh i will i will take you back if (laughs) and she kind of just humors him and you just see making them sound like fishwives but there's not because there is a real love then there between antonin and his wife and there is this love between anna and the magician and the rest of it is just games it's just chest puffing and people trying to prove they're important or desirable or or whatever and i guess that's like a universal thing isn't it there's that wonderful moment where anna yawns when she's watching the 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 magic show and Mm. uh it's just like a way of underlining that, you know, that lifestyle too is also humdrum in its own way. And she's fully aware of that. And she has like no illusions about Arnashtek either. And uh, I think it's just that ability just to tolerate and, you know, just to, to provide as well, isn't it? Because I think partly it's about her, her being the provider, you know, or taking on that role when, you know, when Arnashtek is injured and, 
I think it's also like with the food as well, isn't it? It's like when she she is eating the apples at the major's oh, house. Oh, my like God, she, I love that scene. She has so many apples. <laughs> she's aware that, you know, that, that uh, you know, this is an opportunity just to sort of, you know, get what you can because, you know, you assume these characters are kind of like, you know, living sort of hand to mouth, aren't they really? And uh, it's just about, you know, sort of grabbing a bit of food where you can. And it's that very sort of pragmatic, you know, kind of realism as well, isn't it really? And uh yeah, I, 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 there's also sort of like a biblical connotation, isn't there, I think, as well, to a lot of the food in it. There's two ways to read the apples thing, because obviously it's like the Eve thing, and, and, and the major's getting kind of turned on by it as well. But she's just hungry, which I know, just scoffing them down. And he's getting more and more turned on by it to the point where he sort of jumps on her. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think Brodsky had it in him when he picked her up. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Cause he's just a little guy and able to do that. And then I love how he just falls asleep on her. See, this is what I mean, though. Not, none of them can actually consummate anything. You know, he gets in, you think, oh my God, he's going to rape her. And then he's just asleep. <laughs> All the excitement is too much for him. He just wears himself out. Uh, you, you've also got the, the, is it the canon they call him with his chas love poems and uh yes which is not chased at all is it it's the ovid's uh, art of love <laughs> i've brought you this book but they all i think i think to that these two circus figures they become like ciphers for everybody at the at the spring they just fantasize what they want on them they're like mythical figures. So, you know, the magician is something he's not, the scene is something he's not. Anna is seen differently by each one. And, um, and they just play out this game and, and the other two kind of go along with it so they can eat. <laughs> yeah. Food is majorly important in this food, in this food, in this film. I didn't even really think about it until you're bringing it up. I mean, I want to say the priest starts to choke on perch when he's with Anna and there's the apple stuff and then even when Katerina comes back she's got something in her hand I don't know what it is and then she's got a knife like she was chopping something and I love how uh, Anton is just like oh yeah let me put that over here there's that whole speech at the beginning isn't it when they bring the jar of pickled eggs out about fish and and food and stuff as well and it's a great metaphor as well, isn't it? Because it's like they're, they're sitting down to eat and instead I think it's the major who's just talking and talking and I think the canon says to you, know, do you want to show off your tongue or your teeth? And I think that's one of those key <laughs> lines, isn't it? It's like, do you, do you want to talk or do you want to act? And of course, they always choose to talk, don't they? And, <laughs> and there's also that weird image of the nailed up chicken, isn't there, outside of the caravan window, which has this weird like sacrificial element to it. And I don't know who is the sacrificial victim there, but it's a, another strange image. And you've got that whole thing with the town being kind of like this Greek chorus, those old men sitting around playing cards. And then the fate of Arnostek, the, uh, when he's up on the high wire and the guy's just like, no, 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 it's too dangerous. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. And then he starts knocking the pole and, and he falls and hurts his back. And the old man's just like, see, I told you you'd get hurt. <laughs> shaking him off yes it's oh. terrible i like it when they're also they're all getting drunk and they're singing those songs about the magician like calling him a plutch and going on about how fit his wife is and stuff and they're all <laughs> they are like the greek chorus because you don't even really get to meet those characters or know where they come from they just sort of come in at night 
and start drinking. But they provide this funny little commentary on in the background to the to the main characters. It's this weird like ambivalence, is the the sort of small town attitude where on the one hand, you know, they welcome these people coming and putting on the show because it's something different. It's they're bringing this magic, but then it just very easily turns into hostility, doesn't it? And, yeah, uh, by, you, by the third night, they've had enough. It's raining and it's like, yeah, it's just not magic's gone now. And uh, you get this sense from like what Arne Steck says at the beginning that he's been sort of chased out of town a few times by angry people throwing things at him and not all the things that are thrown at me are edible. And this has to be, and I, I don't want to, you know, clutch in my pearls, but this has to be one of the more violent films, that scene of the uh, the ear being torn off. And just the, the next day when they're looking at the ear, this is the most blood I've seen in a uh, Czech film other than, oh. you know, last August at the uh, Hotel Ozone. But yeah, that, that was... And you got- Antonin sewing him up as well and it's really gruesome and he's just chatting he's still talking when he's sewing he's like still going on sort of giving him his lecture like sewing his ear back on his hands are covered in blood and then he has to walk around with that bandage on his head which I just find really funny every time I see him with that he looks like um what's his name out of Christmas Carol Jacob Marley with the thing tied around his head. <laughs> it's just like, not just one one side, he's got to have his whole head tied up. And then by the end, the, the, the major's also got like the sling, hasn't he? And, and, uh, I, it's a really weird connection, but it kind of reminded me of the fact that in, um, Straw Dogs, you have a lot of the male characters in that who have like crutches or they have some kind of wound or some sort of disability or, or some, you know, physical ailment. And it's, I think in that film, it's kind of like a commentary on the state of masculinity. And I, I almost feel there's a similar thing going on here at the end, because of course, Arn Ashdek himself is also wounded, isn't he? And it's this, you know, reminder, I think, of male weakness. Which goes back to Fellini again, because Fellini's always about male weakness. He was always about like that idea of the Italian Ineto that I talk about a lot, which is like a staple... 60 starts in the 60s with that whole sort of la dolce vita comedy where you've got basically the ridiculous the inept man at the center of everything it's always some guy some middle-aged guy like the later italian sex comedies people like lino banfus like the italian danny devito chasing edward fenick around <laughs> you know just these ridiculous the idea the fact that they're all sort of middle-aged and bolding and stuff and that as well and they all go after anna it reminded me of that whole sex comedy vibe because it's always these guys that are sort of trying to get out of their league with some like barbara boucher or edward fenick in the italian ones or uh and people like Anita Ekberg or some like really glamorous looking woman. And then you get some guy who, who's very vain, very egotistical, kind of ridiculous, kind of hung up on his own ideology and his own self-importance. So it is a really similar culture. But then you think Italy came out of fascism. And of course, uh, Czechoslovakia had come out of Nazi occupation, but then again, then straight into communism. And the Italians started to talk about this way, way post-war when they'd been sort of liberated. But the Czechs are also, well, Menzels is doing this, looking at these same things. What this has done, all this like nationalism and, and war and stuff is done to the male ego. Um, 
whereas you know filmmakers like De Sica and Fellini and that in comedy did the same thing like what happens to a man who's grown up under fascism when he you know is set free he's always become really into himself and really into the Italian ideal even if he doesn't fit that so there's it's, it's these weird parallels even though it was like the two extremes sort of Mussolini and then the Czechs under communism but it's weird how those two same things apply to how the male ego is constructed they are really into especially the major this idea of like the national identity being built on this military thing and bravery none of them are brave like they're all exposed to be kind of cowardly as well but this idea of being bravery or brave or the hero like Antonin I saved the girl I am the hero this whole thing they have going on which didn't happen he just threw a bucket of water over but he's happy to capitalize on it the next day <laughs> it's like well that kind of went a bit tits up and my wife is left but i'm just gonna get what i can out of this and i like the way the two other guys are sort of when he's boasting they're just looking at him like yeah okay and they they're already just, know <laughs> don't they it's already <laughs> it's already gone around the town as well like you know what really happened and <laughs> well what really happened in their mind i mean they don't say That's true yeah this ridiculous guy sat there and gave this woman a foot massage for hours <laughs> That's really interesting. I think, you know, the, the, the parallel that you draw between like the Czech and Italian, you know, sort of masculine images. And I mean, it's very, it's interesting because I think it's much closer to that, say to the, you know, the sort of Fellini's, you know, images of men than say it is to say the Polish cinema. And I mean, people have often made that comparison between Czech and Polish cinema in the sense that, you know, there, there isn't really like a Radziwiłłowicz or like a man of, man of iron type figure in, in Czech cinema, you know, that the, you have, uh, you know, usually these kind of very pathetic and, and sort of nebbishy male figures. And, uh, I believe Woody Allen, you know, ha- has and is still popular in, in, uh, in, in Czech culture. And I mean, Menzel's often considered as the, the Czech Woody Allen. And I think that, you know, there's possibly a reason why, you know, why he is popular. <laughs> yeah. No, I mentioned, I didn't know that. And I mentioned Woody Allen earlier. There is that, I think you see it in, in a lot of other Czech films as well. If you look at one of their national cinematic heroes, the good soldier Schweik, for God's sake. But they were very good at being honest about their failings, I think, especially within the new wave, like things like the cremator, which is talking about collaboration and, Whereas I don't know an awful lot about Polish cinema, but the stuff that I have sort of out of, out of the cult stuff like Schwarowski, obviously, and Borowczyk, but the the more nationalistic stuff, it is this like hardy soldier or the partisan sort of rebel and this. Uh, and you're right, the Czechs don't seem to have that. And the Italians didn't have that post-war. I guess under fascism, they were forced to have that in their cinema. But as soon as the war, as soon as Mussolini was gone, you saw that the, the Italian filmmakers really attacked the male, the male ego much more than they did the female ego in film. And so it was always about, look at how ridiculous these Italian men are. But through that, they could criticize the church. They could con- criticize Catholicism and the hypocrisy. They could criticize bureaucracy through these male figures and you get it in this in that they they are like figureheads like uh i think it was you said Mike, like the businessman 
and, you know, the member of the church and the military person, even though they're fully fleshed out people, they also seem sort of like totems to represent certain certain pillars in this vague way, yeah. I was seeing a lot of comparisons of this with Renoir. Day in the Country. I think the ending is quite similar, isn't it? We have the image of the river with the rain. I, I seem to remember, so long time since I've seen Day in the Country, but I think it has a similar ending, doesn't it? With this assertion of it's just the, the sort of capriciousness of nature. And I guess it's this idea of nature as something that you can't control. And uh, of course, like language and, and talk are things that you can control. And the characters have this very elaborate way with language, which I guess in a way is a desire to you know, assert some kind of authority. But of course, nature and emotions, I mean, these things are, you know, just subject to their own whims. And I think it's that contrast, isn't it, between, you know, this desire to control things and the fact you can't really control nature. And uh, again, I think that's what's really beautiful about what Menzel added. I think, you know, these images of like the rain and of the, you know, the sky, which are really beautiful and which I think the book doesn't really give you to the same extent, really. I mean, it's it's a really beautifully photographed film as well, I think. Oh, it's gorgeous. I really love, like you, Jonathan, I love the pastoral anyway, especially these like pagan elements that you get. But there is so much of that that cinema from the Chetney wave that, that is set in pastoral settings. Here it's used in more of a nostalgic way, I guess. But I would imagine a lot of that had to do with not having much money as well. But I was just, when you were talking about the nature, I was just suddenly thinking the amount of films in Czech cinema that just take place outside in these sort of little villages and stuff, like... You know, even like a report on the party in the guest where you've got a dinner party in the middle of the forest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the landscape is just such a key feature of that period of film. Like, again, like the Italian landscape was, but more the urban landscape, whereas Czechoslovak stuff is more to do with the pastoral, isn't it, in nature. Mm. You've got like films like Daisies or, or Fruit of Paradise where nature is erupting into everything. I think Eastern Europeans have a closer connection to nature than we seem to do in the West. Something they've retained with their dashers and their, you know, what do we do? We go to bloody pontins or something for two weeks. This whole idea of having to be an appreciation of needing to be out in nature for the summer and that's where you congregate and it's like this communal aspect to it. Something I can't think of anything equivalent that we have outside of our weird camping holidays, but they're certainly not on the same. The, the English don't go off for the whole summer, do they? <laughs> I suppose the equivalent we get of it comes out and carry on camping. Another great film about like weak masculinity as well, isn't it? <laughs> it does have you still got like Joan Sims scaring the shit out of Sid James in that, trying to sneak in. Actually, God, there, there, there are too many parallels in this to, I'm saying Fellini, but actually it's all weird British comedy. <laughs> I suppose we've tried to regain that, haven't we, with, with the idea of like folk horror, but it's been a kind of a belated thing. Whereas I guess like, you know, Czechoslovakia, they were already doing this. In the 60s and... Uh... Yeah, well, so many of those films like Marquetta, La Sarava and um, Valley of the Bees. And so I, I would totally cast them, Witch Hammer, I totally cast them as folk horror before we had folk horror in Britain. 
not to get too off the point, but this relationship to nature, I just find absolutely wonderful because I just, I'm, I'm, I'm a disgusting pagan. So I'm just all into that. And a lot of the Czech New Wave films, they really celebrate nature in these ways and show, like with the rain, that it is, you can't beat nature. Nature, nature just is nature, isn't it? Nature. And I think you see that theme in a lot of Czechoslovak films. This, kind of reverence for nature and and everything being about nature i mean that took on a like quite an interesting political dimension as well in the 70s so i guess a bit later than when this film was made when because like, like you mentioned like the dasher and i mean the, i guess the czech equivalent would be like the kata like the little country cottage and in the 70s that became quite famous like quite a famous image of like the era of normalization when people basically turned off from politics completely and the country cottage was like the symbol of like escape from the system and I think Menzel himself made one of like the great films about this this phenomenon um seclusion near a forest which I think was like 76 it was like one of his his comeback which I films. haven't seen that one I really want to see that one I think this is better. I prefer this one, but you prefer that's, that's this one. But yeah, I, I, I've read about it a few times. I just think I need to see this, but it's one I haven't got to yet. But he, he, he often uses these sort of pastoral locations and things to, I guess, talk about the more intimate. Once you put people in an urban setting, especially it's like we talked about the fifth horseman is fear. That's all about urban fear and paranoia when you take people out of that, like you said, and they're relaxing, you see more about the humanity of the people rather than them being put under a microscope. They can breathe a bit more, which is why I think his films were, were some of the most, they were definitely profound, but also the most lighthearted, simultaneously profound and lighthearted. If that can be a thing, <laughs> that is this, but it is, isn't it? That's like, is there a right. name yeah. for that? It's like, you know, it's got these really profound meanings, political meanings and, and humanist meanings, but also it's just so sweet and whimsical. Genius, really. It's absolute genius writing performances, the whole thing, the way it's shot. Uh, to be two things at once is like, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's the... It's that combination, isn't it, of the sort of the, the tr apparently trivial and then the serious. And that is, I think, quite unique, really, I think, in, in Czech culture. And, uh, I mean, I think one of the things that's often said about Banchura's writing, especially like in this book, is that it's, it's taking like apparently trivial, you know, subjects and it's treating them in this very grandiloquent way. And I guess the sort of the, the other side of the coin of that, is the way that, you know, big events, like supposedly serious, you know, world historical events are kind of like bracketed off or are treated in, in this quite offhanded way. And I think there's always that, you know, sort of irony, isn't there, about that? And um, I think, you know, I really like what you said before about the, the way that I think this is not a political film. This is a way of kind of escaping from the political. And I think in a way that is a kind of a political gesture. And I think that's one of the key things about the Czech new wave, which I think makes it so distinctive in that. I mean, and you see it, I think in Foreman and in Passer, and I think in a few other filmmakers too, where I guess what they were doing is they were celebrating the right to, you know, to, to talk about, you know, the everyday things and to, you know, to, to, to abandon the sort of political arena. And that in itself becomes a subversive gesture and, um, yeah, that, that's a completely an accurate way of describing the, 
the whole phenomenon, I think. Um, it's what makes it distinctive, I think. It reminded me a little bit, too, of All My Good Countrymen, especially this whole idea of the nature and the way that that movie is broken up into both time periods as far as years, but then also as far as seasons go. And it's interesting that that came out the next year and then was immediately banned because it was, you know, showing the uh, communist takeover uh, in not such a good light. Well, it's funny that the communists often use the whole rural farming experience, especially in Russia, as their propaganda for comrades, you know, working together on the farm. And, and you know, you had a lot of those propaganda films that came out about communal living and, you know, being the good comrade that was sat around farming life and rural thing. Whereas in a film like Capricious Summer, you've just got people dossing around for weeks, not doing, <laughs> no one's doing any work there. Well, apart from the women, but... You know, just lazing around, you know, are, are they good comrades? I mean, they're not doing sod all, really, are they? Eating pickled eggs, trying to get laid, watching the circus. They've got that last little bit of wine at the end, oh, which yes. I love. Some wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's one of the things where I, I, th- I've take, I take issue with some of the other writings on this film where people have said that they are these kind of like model pillars of society because I think in a way, I think what is so charming about the three characters is that they're not really ideal pillars of society. They're actually quite idle and lazy. And I think that's the charm that it has, isn't it, really? And uh, for, for me, one of the, the most telling lines is I think the one that's recited by Antonin during the argument with the canon. He, he says something about, you know, the playfulness and the bravery of those people who are, you know, who don't really create anything, but they just, you know, prattle on and, 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 you know, they arrange things in a surprising order. And I think that's it. It's a way of connecting the figure of Arnashdek, I think, with these characters. Cause I think in, in their own way, these characters are also somewhat marginal and somewhat eccentric figures, aren't they really? And, uh, it goes back to that opening caption, doesn't it? Where it says about the church and how this church was built. And it was built, I think, according to this, you know, strange floor plan. It was, it was disobeying the rules. And I think already in that opening, you're setting up this idea of doing things, you know, contrary to the rules, you know, breaking the rules a little bit. And, and, uh, you know, it's all about that kind of like idling and freedom and anarchy, I think. Yeah, there is a, a quiet anarchy in it, in that they are all rule breakers and, um, they're all very individual as well. Even if some of the, even if the women hide it to a certain extent, what Anna certainly does, but they're all, it's all about being very, like subtle rule breaking and manipulating people to get what you want out of a situation in this subtle way. And and so everybody is sort of quietly subversive, and I think that's. I'd like to go and hang out with those guys. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Me you'd too. have fun with them, listening to them. But they are all kind of quietly rebellious, but not in a way that would ever rock the boat. I don't think it's any coincidence that Menzel is playing the magician, and he has that moment where he just looks right into the camera and is basically like announcing the next scene. You know, it's like, oh, I am about to show you things of wonder and, and majesty. And then we move on to the next area of the film where it becomes that three nights of the circus kind of thing. I, I definitely think that he was just like, hey, I'm the ringmaster here. Let me take you into the next part of the movie. Oh, I love that. I love that shot. The whole thing about the circus, though, 
And again, being one of those weird pagans, it crops up a lot in Czechoslovak cinema, this sort of, uh, and pepper tree as well. We haven't got that in here, but their relationship to pepper tree and spectacle and circus. And uh, we, we just don't have that in, in Britain at all outside of the Victorians who were really into that, but we kind of lost that. And I'm jealous because you stick a circus in anything and I will love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I just at that same sense of magic. And even though the circus seems a weirdly mundane, the first time I ever saw that film, I just, there's something really magical about it. And it's almost like those parts exist in, Angela Carter's weird magical realist world of weird characters like Knights of, from things like Knights of the Circus, just without the magical realism. And, and again, it's these two counterpoints because the circus is quite mundane. There's nothing fantastic about it. And yet it's still magical. And I don't quite understand why. <laughs> I don't, it doesn't do what Fellini does in things like Juliet of the Spirits where he has like a whole ensemble coming out on horse plumed horses in a, in a glittering chariot and jugglers and clowns and stuff. It's really low key. That's, that was always the thing that my takeaway from the film images that I remember, Anna in a little mask. And the magician on, on with his cards on the top of the thing, just there's, there's something so magical about them. But the reality is he's just this not very good acrobat balancing on a thing. You can be shaken off by an old man, <laughs> but it, it, there's something, I don't know, really awe-inspiring about it. Really, really magical. Like, I don't quite understand how he does it. And it's that symbolism of like night and day, isn't it? Because most of the other scenes are in the daylight. And then I think the scenes at night usually are either the circus or it's the, the exploits with Anna. And it's that opposition, isn't it? Between, I guess it's the sort of mundanity of the daytime and then the sort of possibilities of the excitement of the night, which of course is never really delivered on, but there's always that, that potential, isn't there? For, but Bergman too is really interested in like traveling players, isn't he? I was going, I was going to bring up Bergman because yeah, Bergman had that similar relationship with the land. That simple, although he wasn't as nostalgic in that way, he was a bit more. But this fascination, all of the Fellini fascination with clowns, circuses, these magical aspects. You've got, you know, Lestra- Fellini's Lestrada is about traveling people and. Yeah, The Magician by Bergman, these characters that travel around, just this weird fascination. In the case of Fellini and Bergman, they were really taken by actual visits to the circus and things, like when they were kids, that did seem like magic. I don't know where it comes from in Menzel, because I've read a few interviews with him, but not seen any mention of where that comes from. But you do feel that same childish sense of excitement when the circus arrives. And, and the, like you said, it turns to night and he's there with it. Anna's there with a little mask on and everything. You, he, he somehow conjures that same sense of excitement that you, you just think, Oh God. Yeah. We're at the circus. I wonder if it's also the fact that a lot of filmmakers that, that generation in Europe, they had that interest in like slapstick comedy as well. And I think probably had grown up watching Chaplin and Keaton and uh, probably also were just old enough that there were still, you know, like puppet shows and there were, you know, sort of, uh, home puppet theaters. And, uh, I think they kind of belong to that culture, don't they? Where I think in their childhood, they would have 
you know, been very familiar with slapstick and uh, that would have been probably their, their introduction to cinema. There's quite a bit of slapstick in this, actually, now you're saying that. There is quite a bit of physical comedy, but it's not done in a sort of ostentatious way. But, you know, not just him falling off the thing, but even Antonin getting out naked and the boat sinking and all that stuff, so much sort of weird physical comedy in it. That's that's kind of understated as well. It's not done in a wacky way, but even the ear becomes comical, even though Mike thinks it's gross. Well, I am easily offended. It is a kind of spaghetti western style image, isn't it? I guess it's uh <laughs> or reservoir dogs or yeah. something. Put it back on. When we were talking about, you know, like the the, the actual capricious summer of nineteen sixty eight, I guess, you know, one example of that was Czechoslovakia, but I guess the other one was uh France and uh uh I think one of the sad things about this film, and I think one reason probably why it didn't get as much recognition as it should have done is that this was meant to play at Cannes in 68, which of course famously was the year when the Cannes Festival was closed down at the instigation of various Oh, filmmakers. is that the fucking Goddard year? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. fuck's sake. This is like the Goddard <laughs> man. This is the Goddard man in action, isn't it? Being an asshole. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. won't understand that unless they follow me on Facebook. But oh, I, I, I'm sure we've discussed this before, haven't we? Somebody else not, not getting their spotlight because of the fucking I think it was Nemetz as well, wasn't it? I think Party and the was it Party and the Guests? I think uh, was meant to. Play it was Nemesh, wasn't it? Yeah, oh, no, yeah. yeah I, I thought we've talked about this before. <laughs> you know, like these the people ultimate... coming out of Czechoslovakia, not having the privilege to make a statement in that way, take having yeah. their spotlight r- robbed from them. Enti- entitlement. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people were just so pissed at Foreman because he just went along with it and was like, yeah, okay, great. Yeah, let's cancel this and, you know, solidarity. And it's like, you motherfucker. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, I I remember, I can't remember which documentary I was watching, but I think it might have been one of the Golden 60s episodes where it was just like, yeah, I think the reason why they wanted to cancel Khan was because there were no good French films that year. It was like, oh, snap. (laughs) Just the whole, not to go too off point, but just the whole kind of arrogance of it that people were coming out of the Eastern Bloc trying to get their films and are shut down by people going, yeah, the left. And it's like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you're shouting for communism, but these guys aren't quite so on board with it. (laughs) Bear that in mind. (laughs) Didn't Foreman make us... Didn't he say something about, you know, he said like, you know, in Czech, like we were pulling the flags down and in France, they were putting the flag, the same flags up. Yeah, you know, right. This, <laughs> but they were playing with it. Yeah. I remember when I was, um, I was doing some, uh, writing on, on, um, the Slovak film Dragon's Return, which I mean, is a wonderful film. Another pe- very pagan film as well, isn't it? And I think that was meant to play at, Le- I think it was Lecano. I think the Lecano festival and I think Goddard close that one down too so i think he had made a habit of this i think around this time (laughs) (laughs) so gretchen wasn't able to show the film and then that i mean became sort of completely forgotten or i mean could someone do a book on czechoslovak or eastern european film directors international success thwarted by goddard film festivals all these people's careers were affected he was he was pretty nasty about hitilova too wasn't he because i think she appears briefly in pravda and i I think he just says some derogatory thing about her so yeah <laughs> just, 
you're on such that a note, fucker. Jonathan steers me up. all right guys let's go ahead and take a break and we're going to play a preview for next week's episode right after these brief messages sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons there's got to be a better way now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at fathermalone.com and on iTunes. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers both Android and iOS. Okay, banga banga. This one of you talk a native language. I just started today. Well, what do you say? What do you say? I don't even know what I said. Do I? Maybe. Of course I do. 
Mitchell and Sammy Petrillo turn an island paradise into the zaniest madhouse in the seven seas. Charlita puts a gleam in Duke Mitchell's eyes. Your smile only added life to your masquerade. Muriel Landers puts the whammy on Sammy. Sammy! Run for your life! Go on, get out of here. Run for your life. Ramona, the romantic chimp, takes off on a romantic chase of her own. Strange. But interesting. Really think so? What a charming compliment. Bella Lugosi finds the perfect subject to turn a gorilla into a goop and versa visa. <laughs> Look, 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 what That's right. We are kicking off Shocktober 2021 with a look at Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Jonathan and Kat. So, Jonathan, what's keeping you busy? I'm going to be uh, doing some research on the film uh, Morgan, A Suitable Case for Treatment, which is uh, actually also related to gorillas. But this is David Warner meets a gorilla. And this is this uh, crazy 60s film about madness and performance and politics. And uh, it's a little bit forgotten these days so i want to really look at the kind of how this film connects i think kitchen sink drama with swinging london and with the kind of hippie culture so it's a little bit of a break from czech cinema um i've also just finished a chapter on czech uh, cult cinema and i'm looking specifically at the crazy comedies um and this is for a collection which i believe will be called uh, decolonizing cult cinema and hopefully will be released uh, or published next year, although I'm not quite sure yet because of the you know current publishing schedules uh, being impacted. But uh, yeah, hopefully next year that will be coming out. <laughs> and Kat, how about yourself? I've just done a video essay on Men of the Stone Women for Arrow, which they've restored that film at last, a decent restoration of it. And I also got let into the grown-up films. I got to do The Seventh Seal for BFI as a folk horror. So um, I'm quite sure some people are going to consider my commentary an act of sacrilege. But I have no regrets because I still maintain Seventh Seal as a horror film. I think that one's coming out quite soon as well in the first UHD release for BFI as well. <laughs> it's just like, whoa. Oh, also the folk horror box set, which I know Mike is part of with the projection beef. My Witch Hammer video essay from the second run DVD has been ported over and I did a new commentary for that set on an Italian folk, like one of the uh, Italians didn't really do much in the way of folk horror, Il Demonio. Brunello Rondi film talking of everything's about Fellini. He was Fellini's one of Fellini's scriptwriters. Made this sort of very weird, very political folk horror film in the early sixties, which was also Sergio Martino Luciano 
Martino's first production thing. So like it was a convergence of all, all my loves coming together that track. It's all out soon. And check me out on Patreon, Cat Ellinger's Confessions of a Cine Slut. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Thank you.